can you join me in thanking those guys for their worship and their praise to us this morning? Well, good morning. Good morning. All right, now you're with me. Good. If you have your Bibles, grab those and get to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, there is a black one in the seat backs in front of you. We want you to get to page uh, 1052 of that. Um, because we want you to be able to follow along with what we're saying uh, this morning is not our opinion. It comes directly uh, from the Word of God, and that matters every week, and it matters a little more to me today based on some things we're going to talk about. We're glad, I'm grateful that you are here, grateful for the worship team for their service to us this morning, grateful for everybody who's joining us online, and uh, love hearing the pages turns. We get to First Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to invite you to join me uh, in a word of prayer as we kick this off. God, we are thankful. Uh, we are thankful for each and every person who's here. Uh, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to, to open your word, to, to study it, uh, to, to, to hear from you this morning. Uh, Lord, we know uh, that you've already inhabited the praise of your people. You've already been enthroned by the praises of your people this morning. And so we pray that you just continue what you've already begun to work in our hearts, that you would be the one who speaks and convicts and teaches and moves, that you would get all the glory from this time. And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, the entire Parks family was sitting in a waiting room earlier this week, and it's a, it's a waiting room that we're in at least once a month, um, and so if there were changes, that we should notice them. And we, the way we were sitting, this, uh, Corinne was in one chair, our nine-year-old Gemma was between us, and then I was sitting on the other side of Gemma, and on the wall, uh, there was a, a framed painting of a butterfly. Uh, and Gemma leans over to her mom and says, hey, is that, is that butterfly new? And Corinne looks at it and goes, yeah, I think it is new. And I was... I heard, overheard the conversations because it was nearby. I wasn't a part of it. At this point, Gemma then leans over to me and says, don't worry, Dad. I know guys don't notice things like that. <laughs> now, in her defense, I hadn't noticed it. If she didn't point it out, I wouldn't have noticed it. It could be up there for the next three years and I would have never noticed it, right? In fact, there was once a time in my life where I actually walked around bragging about my observational skills. I remember telling Corinne when we were dating, I think I would make a good detective because I just see things, Right? And Corinne brings that up to me now, not to encourage me, but to openly mock me, right? Because I am horrible at the simple basic life skill of noticing anything now. Um, and, I, and the mental decline in this area is, is steepening and, and honestly a little bit concerning. Uh, there's an office episode where Creed is eating an apple, and they, they take bets among themselves. If they switch it out for potato, will he notice? And of course, they switch it out, and he eats a potato and just goes on with life. I used to laugh at that. Now I just see a concerning picture of my future, okay? Um, despite my creeping senility, I find myself valuing more and more whenever it is I actually do notice something different. I love when physical spaces are updated and improved upon. I, I like seeing people step out and try new things. I, I have a pretty high value of this idea of, uh, of self-improvement, of, of asking God to grow and develop and change me. If there's anything that I can do to help facilitate that or get out of his way. But man, despite my limitations in this, what I always notice, what is always moving to me, is when someone's life and posture and attitude and convictions are truly different. In this world that is increasingly demanding this groupthink and conformity in all ways, to see someone graciously yet firmly stand against the tide is one of the most impressive things I see. A few weeks ago, we did a Q&A with uh, some college students that were going here to FBN, and one of the questions that was asked to me was this, if you could go back and tell high school freshman Brett anything, what would you tell him? 
And my answer was, I would tell him that almost nothing that he's worried about matters. And they chuckled at kind of how blunt it was, but what I meant was this. I remember distinctly the feel, feeling the pressure and the press in school to not stand out. Right? The, the, the press to conform, to fit in, to not be different, because in that environment, to be different could bring negative attention. And so quickly I adapted to this. Quickly I became uh, a chameleon, and I could adapt to any group I was with, any room I was with. And, and, and what I did was it made my temporary experiences in those rooms a whole lot easier, I'm not going to lie. But it did really long-term damage to my soul. It killed my spiritual walk and witness in high school. It implanted lies deep in my soul that I'm still, with the Lord's help, rooting out. I'm still dealing with the ramifications of. And so I have this burning passion for young people to not repeat my same mistakes. And so there's a phrase I use a lot with our girls that they are already rolling their eyes at, but they're going to get used to. And the phrase is, get used to being different. Because the argument, everyone else has it. The argument, everyone else is doing it. Everyone else is going, just simply will not carry weight in the Parks household. Because different isn't bad. In fact, to be different in the right ways is of the highest honor. And the New Testament is clear again and again that this is the calling on the church. And as our culture's value system is increasingly stands in opposition to God's word, this calling will fall in increasing amounts of heaviness on each and every one of us in this room. But the church of Jesus, since her inception, has been countercultural. When she's operated as she should, the church has pushed back against what is considered the norms of society and remained a consistent beacon of truth. And it's not because church people are better are smarter and more honorable, but it's because the church has been, should be different because we have what no one else does. In our passage today, we're gonna to see why this is not only possible, but why it absolutely should be the case. And so I'm gonna invite Ruth up to read uh, 1, Timothy chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. If you're physically capable, would you please stand with Ruth for the reading of God's word this morning? Morning. Okay, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. <clears throat> I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Thank you, Ruth. You guys can have a seat. And please keep your Bibles open right there because those are the two verses we're going to be unpacking today. If you've been with us, you know that we as a church are going through this book of 1 Timothy. We've been in it for uh, several months already. Um, we're going to be in it for a little bit longer. And, and, and this is not a book, it's a letter. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul uh, to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, who uh, they were traveling around visiting different churches. And when they got to the city of Ephesus, they found the church there in such shambles, right? It was in such disarray. The false teaching had taken over. Uh, they, they, Paul, in good conscience, could not just leave it and move on. And so he left Timothy behind, planting him as the chief shepherd there uh, to bring stability uh, to the church. And he's writing him, uh, and in chapters 2 and 3, which we've been going over the last several weeks, he's covered uh, what the structure of the church should be, what uh, a church's worship services should look like, uh, the leadership of the church. And he tells Timothy here in verse 14 that I'm hoping to come to you soon. Now, if you've read the book of Acts, you've read Paul's writings, you know what he means by that. There were no guarantees in Paul's life. Right? So it was his desire, it was his hope to come to soon. But then he tells us why he wrote this letter. He said, but just in case I can't, I have written this to you so that you can know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's church. That's so the very first thing that we see, based on that alone, just Paul writing this entire letter on that, is how people conduct themselves in the church matters to God. It matters to God. 
Uh, and you, you probably know this, but the word conduct just means behavior. It means how we act, how we carry ourselves. And how the church does this is incredibly important to God. And there's three reasons I want to highlight why this is so. And the first reason is this, that the church is his. You see that first title we're given in verse 14? Right, how to conduct themselves in God's household. That means that the church is God's house. It's his family. We who are in Jesus and therefore in the church are children of God. And isn't that amazing? I, I think too often we don't, we don't think enough on how amazing it is that we have been saved and redeemed and bought and adopted by God himself. In fact, in Acts 20, uh, Paul is addressing some other elders and he says, Be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers, to shepherd what? To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you see the language? It's the church of God, right? Not the church of Brett, not the church of Josh, not the church of Travis. It's the church of God. We are his, okay? At First Timothy, we are God's household. And so FBN and every other church belong first and foremost to God. He is our Father, He is our Lord, and our authority and our King. And so, of course, it will matter to Him how it is that we conduct ourselves. Secondly, on top of that, it's His reputation and glory are on the line. It's God's house, so it's Church of Jesus, not any of us. And so it's His name, His reputation, His glory that is harmed the most when we conduct ourselves, uh, uh, the, when the conduct of the church goes awry from His design. And by the way, these two things alone... I'm not going to spend a ton of time on them, but these two things alone, that, this, that the church is his, and it's his glory in the line, we need to know this. This gives him every right to design and govern and lead the church as he pleases. He doesn't owe us any consultation. He doesn't owe us any explanation. He doesn't owe us any qualifications. It's simply our job to obey what he has put in place. Thirdly, the, the conduct of the church matters to God because he purchased the church with his blood. There is no church without the cross. There's no one in this room today who would be a part of the church without the cross of Jesus. There's no one who would be saved and redeemed and adopted as an adopted child of God without the cross of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Paul writes, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were what? You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. That price was the death of Jesus on the cross. That price was the blood of God's son which is shed for you. That price was his body which was whipped and beaten and broken for you. And again, this alone, forget the other two, this alone is sufficient to showcase how the church matters to God. I'm assuming there are some homeowners in here today, right? You guys own your own home. And I'm assuming that there's a difference between the way that you treat your home and then the way that you would treat, say, a styrofoam plate, right? And the difference is directly related to cost, the difference is directly related to the investment you made in each. You might throw a styrofoam plate away after one use. Hopefully you don't do that with your house. Okay? God's care and attention to his church is directly related to the cost and investment that he made into us, which was the life of his own son. Secondly, we see here the church is to be set apart. Now the concept of something being set apart is a biblical concept. Something that is set apart is holy, it's consecrated, it's protected. You know what it is? It's different. It's just different. It's a good different. And this calling very much falls squarely onto the church. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this. Do not be conformed to this age. You know what he means by saying that? Don't, don't just look 
like everybody else looks. Don't just live like everyone else lives. Don't, don't, don't just line up to, with conformity to this age, this culture, but instead what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That is the Bible telling us that we can know God's will by not conforming to the ways of this world, but instead by being transformed, which means to be changed, to be different. First Peter 1, the calling gets even higher. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all, in all your conduct. There's that word again. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And you realize how high that standard is? Now, obviously, this is a very high calling, okay? It's inspiring, yes. Daunting, overwhelming, also yes. So why does the New Testament lift this up as a call? Why could we even claim that it's possible to pursue this and strive for this? Well, it's possible to pursue this and strive for this because there are two things the church of Jesus has that nobody else does. And we see both of them right here in our passage this morning. And the first is this, that our identity is secure in Jesus Christ. I really don't believe that we are sufficiently blown away by the title we're given here. That we are called God's household. Do you understand the ramifications of that? That means that the creator God, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one whose power was so great, he simply spoke everything into existence. The one who's sovereign over everything, the one who, according to Colossians 1, by his power is still holding it all together. The one who has always reigned, is reigning, and will always reign. The one whose kingdom will not only come in increasing fruition, but it will come so until there is nothing left that is not under his total dominion. And the one who all his enemies will be defeated forever. That God calls us, his church, his children. That God says, you are my sons and daughters. You're in my household forever. If that God is for us, whoever can stand against us? That means there's no amount of loss, there's no amount of criticism, there's no amount of harm or injustice or injury or attack or more that will ever change who I am in Jesus Christ. And that's a game changer. Because the entire world is desperately looking for identity. And they're trying to find it in their ideologies, and they're trying to find it in their political parties, they're trying to find it in their causes, and their sports teams, and their career, and their money and possessions, and more, and every single one of those things they're trying to find identity in can fail them and be taken from them today. But if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, he is yours, and you are his forever. And if you're here today, and you're not yet a child of his, that is what is offered to you today. You exist this morning. We, we are all sinners who've fallen short of God's perfect standard. And because of that, we can never hope to approach God. We can never hope to earn eternal life into, for he, into heaven. And that is why God sent his son, Jesus, to take on our form, to, to walk in our weaknesses, to walk in our limitations, to feel our temptations, and yet he never sinned. And so when that Jesus went to the cross, he died to pay the penalty for the sins of any who believe in him. And when he rose from the grave, he died to offer you this, that if you would believe in him and surrender to him, not only would all your sins be forgiven, not only would you be redeemed and reconciled to God, not only would you be adopted as God's child, but when your time on this earth ends, he will take you home to be with him forever. And that is what is laid before you. And if you're in the church, that is your identity. You are his child forever. You are secure in that. If that doesn't make us difference, what in, in the world would? Secondly, we have the truth. We've got to understand this. We have the truth. Please don't hear this as we're right and everyone else is wrong. That's not the heart of this. But listen to verse 15 again. He says, but I should be delayed. I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And what does that last part say? 
the pillar and foundation of the truth. We've already covered that the church is God's, right? And the church has Jesus. Because of that, because we have Jesus, we have the truth. Jesus gives himself this identity in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, and what else? I am the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 8, Jesus speaking again. He says, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Man, God is truth. God is the originator of truth. He's the creator of truth. All truth finds its start in him. He is the foundation, sustainer, protector, and proclaimer of truth. All truth starts with God. And so in the church, when we get Jesus, we get the truth. Yes, we get hope. Yes, we get faith. But you need to understand, we don't get false hope, and we don't get illogical faith, because Jesus is the truth. And therefore, we can know it. 1 John 5 says this. Listen, listen to the, plain, the difference that is laid before us here. We know that we are of God and that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one that is in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Do you see the difference there? Right? It says plainly that the whole world exists under the sway of the evil one. Under the influence of the evil one, who, who, is, who Jesus calls the father of lies. And all in the church, right, know the true one. And because we are in the true one. And so we have understanding from God, we can know truth. And by the way, these two things, having a secure identity that cannot be taken away from you, and having the truth, they need to be absolute game changers, because they are. They need to result in us shaping our lives around these realities. They need to result in there being something different about us. And more on that in a minute. But third, third thing that we see in this passage is that the church must both protect and proclaim the truth. It's called here in verse 15, the foundation and the pillar of the truth. That word foundation is also translated buttress in some of your translations. It, it means in the ground. The word means a support to make stable and steady. All right, this calling means that the church doesn't just have truth, but it's the call of the church to uphold the truth, to steady the truth, to protect the truth. In two weeks, we're going to start chapter 4, and we're going to see very clearly what happens when churches don't do this, because it was what was happening in Ephesus. But the calling on the church of Jesus is to stand in opposition to the schemes of darkness, to stand against the sways and push of culture, and to uphold the truth that we have in Jesus Christ. It's part of our calling as this church. Secondly, this pillar image, that'd be a strong one for Timothy. Because Timothy was serving in Ephesus. In the center of Ephesus, there was a temple that was built to the false goddess Diana, and they lined it with 127 pillars. This temple was designed to proclaim Diana's supposed supremacy to Ephesus, and they put the pillars on the outside to draw eyes to the temple, to get people to notice it, to get people to see it. And that, Paul says, is what the church is to do with the truth of Jesus. That we were to proclaim it, we were to put it up on a pedestal, we were to draw eyes to it, because there's nothing more true, there's nothing more life-altering than the important truth of, of Jesus' gospel. The truth that everyone is a sinner in desperate need of grace, and that they're on their way to hell forever, and in Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ alone, they can be saved, and they can be forgiven, and they can be granted eternal life in heaven. There is nothing bigger than that. And so it must be proclaimed by those who've been saved by Jesus. When it's popular and when it's not, when it's convenient and when it's not, when it's safe and when it's not, and when it's accepted by culture and when it isn't. 
because every single one of us who are in Christ know the truth of the gospel because someone was faithful to proclaim it to us. And so we must do the same for many others. Now listen, the church is unique in that our identity is secure and that we have the truth in Jesus and his word. So what do we do with it? I mean, honestly, I've been wrestling this all week because honestly, there are dozens, dozens of good ways to respond to this. Because those two things change and affect so much. A couple are, are, are blatantly obvious. We should obey. Right? As a church, we should line up with God's design for his church. As individuals, we should strive to line up with his calling on our lives. Um, at second, we must protect and proclaim truth. Right? Regardless of what is accepted and what isn't, FBN must be a place that guards and keeps the clear truth of God's word and the gospel of Jesus. We must proclaim it in our services. We must proclaim it in our lives, in our conversations, even our actions and decisions and attitudes. And it's more in general, I'll admit that. But that's really what I, where I want to land this. Because it's an idea that I just can't shake. It's been in my head for a couple of weeks. And the idea is simply this, is to get used to different. And here's what I mean by this. If the church of Jesus has what no one else has, then our uniqueness should not stop there. We should be different and in increasing numbers of ways. Because the call of Jesus Christ on your life when you became his child is not a cleaned up and calmed down, more PG or G-rated version of your previous life. That's not why Jesus saved you. The call on your life is not a PG-rated version of everyone else's life either. The call on you is to be different and to be transformed in every way into his likeness. And there's a seeming, a seeming, that, that, there seeming more evidence in me that a majority of American Christians just simply aren't different enough. That the way we make decisions, the way we count and measure success, the way that we view the world and others, it's just the same as everybody else, with maybe a little less swearing and a little less drink and a little more church. And Craig Groeschel calls these Christian atheists that their belief in God has changed so little about their life that if they stopped believing tomorrow, it'd be really hard to notice much difference. And man, that's not our hope for you, FBN. That is not what you were called to in God's word. It's not what you were called to in Jesus because we are God's household. Our identity is secure. We have truth, so be different. And be it so much so that you get used to it. The question I want to lay before you this morning is this. Where have you just simply gotten used to and gotten in the rhythm of just being normal? Or to borrow a phrase from Paul, where have you conformed to the patterns of this age and this world? Normal people? Normal people put way too much of their hope and identity in their money and their possessions. Normal people define their sexual ethics by what they want to do. Normal people just give away this incredibly valuable commodity of time flippantly to pursuits that aren't of the highest aim. Normal people push and drive their children to succeed in things that don't ultimately ladder and then ignore the things that do. Normal people are prone to groupthink and conformity and just fall in the way of the crowd. Normal people, regardless of what faith they claim, live mostly for themselves. Beyond that, you should know normal Christians... Normal Christians don't have a consistent spiritual conversations with their children. Normal Christians barely have daily engagement with the word, little at all. Normal Christians elevate personal preferences over the mission of the church. Normal Christians have financial goals that don't look any different than non-Christians. Normal Christians rarely share their faith. Normal Christians spend most of their energy in their spiritual walk in maintenance mode, just protecting their own faith and never investing in others. 
Normal Christians make reasonable plans and set reasonable goals and never take a spiritual risk where they need God to come through for them. That's what normal Christians do. But you need to know that God throughout the history of the church has not delighted in using normal Christians. He's not delighted in using Christian chameleons or Christian atheists. It's not the first tool he grabs, which is why the calling on your life is not to be normal. It's to be different. It's to be changed. It's to be transformed to the place where these spiritual rhythms become like muscle memory to you. The idea is that you're so different. You, you do it so much that you just get used to it. And the only way to truly live different, the only way to consistently be different is to embrace what is different about you. You have in your hands this morning the truth. You have the truth in Jesus Christ and his word. Your identity is secure in him. And the God who's given you those two amazing things is a God that you can trust completely and fully. And at that point, different isn't as scary Different isn't as risky when you have that God because with a secure identity as his child, with the truth in hand, with a trust in that God, you are freed up to live differently. You no longer have any need to fret about the evil aims of men or worry about conspiracy theories because you can trust that God is in control because, and he wins in the end. You no longer have any need to get so worked up and find your identity in political affairs because you can trust that God in his sovereignty not only has you but he has the entire world. You no longer have any need to get lost, to lose all hope in, in the midst of suffering because you can trust that your good God will bring good out of it and eventually he'll bring you home to be with him forever. You have no need to try and make complete sense of what he's asking of you or doing in your life because you can trust that he will cover you and he is for you. Do you see the difference, church? With what God has given us in Christ Jesus, we are free to push our children to Christ. We are free to live generously. We are free to forgive freely and not be offended. We are free to take more God-sized risks. We are free to be on the internet less and listen to his voice more. We are free to not demand our way and not share our every opinion. We are free to value and pursue God's standards. We are free to suffer well and to multiply and invest in people and to live on mission and to push back the gates of hell because he has freed us up to do so. We are free to be different. And man, do I want us to get used to that. The question I ask myself all the time, and, and I never found a sufficient answer to, is why are we chasing what everyone else does? Why are we making decisions and scheduling our lives like everybody else does? Why are we just as worked up and just as angry and just as fearful and just as worried and just as skeptical and just as on edge as everyone else is? We have the truth and our identity is secure. Let us ask the Lord to center us on him, to root us in our identity as his children, to saturate us with his truth so that we don't live a life that is just simply moderately cleaned up, but instead we live a life that has been transformed and changed and different all for the glory of our king. Let's pray. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I, I've, I want you to know I have gone back and forth all week about how to close this thing because the application points are just incredibly far and incredibly wide to, to, to narrow them down to one thing. So what I'm going to ask for today is an acknowledgement and then a commitment. I think the acknowledgement starts with just us recognizing, based on the Lord's working in our lives, that we aren't different enough. Acknowledgement starts that we have just accepted normal way too much. Acknowledgement that, that we have settled for a moderately cleaned up version 
of a previous life and think that Jesus would, be, would find that sufficient. When the calling on our lives is to be transformed and be different. And so without anyone else looking, but just so I can know who to pray for and just so you can physically respond to the Lord today, if you have just accepted normal too much in your life, would you please raise your hand and I will commit to pray for you this morning. Thank you for that. Now secondly, what I'm going to pray for you specifically is because this can be so broad and so wide and so overwhelming is I'm going to pray for just one simple step. For God to identify one thing in your life where you've accepted normalcy too much, one area that you can make a commitment to him this morning, that you will begin to pursue difference. That you begin to take a step closer to him. You begin to live in a way that would honor him in that area. And from that one step, there'll come another and another and another. But for today, let's just focus on one. Father, we're grateful for each and every person who's here this morning. We're grateful for your work in our lives. And we ask, Lord, we, I pray specifically for every hand that was raised. Every hand that identified to you this morning. God, I, I'm too used to normal. I'm too used to conforming to the ways of this world. I, I, I have too many goals that match this world's goals. I have too many outlooks, too many ideals, too many dreams that just aren't different enough. Lord, I thank you for their humble recognition of that. I thank you that you worked in lives to, to bring them to a point where they can acknowledge that. And I pray for each and every hand that went up that right now you would speak to them individually. And right now you would identify one area of their life, one step that they can take, one thing that they can commit to you this morning that they will begin to pursue difference. They will begin to pursue transformation. And Lord, as you identify that, I pray that they would surrender to the cross of Jesus this morning. They would repent of it. They would find your grace and your forgiveness wash over them anew. And that we could all leave this place fully trusting in the God who saved us, the God who redeems us, the God who secured our identities, and the God who has given us his truth. That we might embrace that we might live out, that we might get used to different for the glory of Jesus. And we ask this all in his powerful name. Amen.